I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In 2020, events have again shone a light on inequalities across the globe, and Australia is not an exception. 20 years on from the reconciliation walks of the year 2000, this nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind and in the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to the Elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. Oh, mate, this is just impossible. Too many people were confused. Uh, you bet you are. Uh, you bet I am. I have always believed in miracles. That's not a policy. Not now, not ever. I mean... These comments are completely inappropriate. Oh, I'm sure she's right. But I ain't spending any time on it. How pathetic. You're a classic space invader. Disgusting, mud-sucking creatures. You should be ashamed of yourselves! Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Taste of democracy, very good. Hello and welcome to Democracy Sausage Extra. I'm Martin Pierce, and I'm here filling in at the barbecue hot plate for Mark Kenny, who is on a well-deserved holiday break. Democracy Sausage is produced in partnership with Crawford School, the Australian Studies Institute, and the School of Politics and International Relations here at the Australian National University. Late last month, the Australian Federal Government announced it would introduce a new foreign relations bill which would regulate agreements made by state and local governments as well as uh, universities with foreign governments. Prime Minister Scott Morrison, speaking at the time, said it's vital when it comes to Australia's dealings with the rest of the world that we speak with one voice and work to one plan. And under this proposed new legislation, Victoria's decision to sign up to China's Belt and Road Initiative, or BRI, is in the government's sights. Signed in 2018 by Premier Daniel Andrews, the deal was hoped to attract Chinese infrastructure investment to the state, as well as provide Victorian infrastructure experts access to billions of dollars worth of BRI projects around the world. Despite not being legally binding, the deal drew criticism for being out of step with the federal government's position and not being in Australia's national interest. So what is driving the Belt and Road Initiative? What economic and foreign policy factors are behind it? And what does it mean for Australia? And 
Here to discuss the BRI with me today is one of Australia's most preeminent scholars of China, Professor Jane Golley. Jane is the director of the Australian Centre on China in the World, ANU. She's an economist, a graduate of ANU and Oxford University, and president of the Chinese Studies Association of Australia. Hello, Jane. Hello. Thanks so much for joining us on Democracy Sausage Extra. So the BRI is a multi-decade, $1 trillion plus infrastructure investment plan. It involves over 60 countries. Its two major components are the Silk Road Economic Belt, which stretches across Central Asia and into Europe, and the 21st century Maritime Silk Road, which tracks around Southeast Asia and into the Indian Ocean, the east coast of Africa, and into the Mediterranean. So the scale of it is absolutely immense, and it's a hugely ambitious policy uh, driven by President Xi Jinping. Can you tell us a little about what's actually driving this initiative? So I think we should go back to the start of the 2000s, and I'll try and keep it brief there. But from that period on, China was certainly uh, intent on going out uh, into the world uh, and developing its resources uh, abroad. So there are quite a few internal imperatives behind that, energy security, for example, that led it to wanting to invest resources across uh, the global ec- economy. Uh There was also some politics involved from the beginning. Uh, So through the 2000s, the United States was putting an increasing amount of pressure on China, I think it's fair to say, for it to play a more responsible role as a global stakeholder. Uh, They wanted them to appreciate the renminbi, which did happen from the 2010 or so onwards, and that gave Chinese companies uh, more buying power abroad. Uh, it was also a partly a response, and this was a, the first indication that there was a strategic element to it, that when President Obama announced the Trans-Pacific Partnership uh, back in about 2011 or 12, uh, China was deliberately excluded from that. And there were strategic thinkers in China from that time on that started to talk about the need to look westward, that is not towards the United States and the Western economies, but to look west from Beijing across the map. And in fact, one of the most striking things I think that you can see if you look at maps of the Belt and Road, and you can Google it and take a look, uh, the United States is very distinctively missing. So the scheme, when it was first introduced by President Xi in 2013, was called One Belt, One Road. It's now the Belt and Road Initiative. What's behind the name change? Look, I think he recognised pretty quickly, well, I'm not sure if he did, but certainly a lot of analysts did, that he kind of overplayed his hand. And that was evident from the start. I'll always remember the New York Times uh, headlines pretty much the day after the Belt and Road, or the One Belt, One Road was announced. Uh, And they were that this was China's trillion dollar plan to shake up the global economic order. And I think just that name, One Belt and One Road, seemed to really stress the fact that it was coming out of Beijing uh, and being driven, uh, as you said at the beginning, there was and there still is on the map quite distinctively a belt and one road. Uh, But of course, in the time since then, it's expanded well beyond that. I mean, it stretches now down to the Pacific, in fact, all the way down to Victoria. Uh, So partly it was a a recognition that there was more than one belt and one road. But I think it was also trying to downplay that kind of control and ownership stemming out of Beijing. So the BRI draws images of the traditional Silk Road which was a network of trade routes connecting east and west that emerged in the 2nd century BCE. 
What, what kind of parallels can be drawn between BRI and the and the Silk Road? Well, again, if you look at the map of the of the modern uh, road and belt, then you can certainly see the Silk Road's uh, connection to it. And in fact, uh, one of the maps draws a line all the way from Beijing as far through to Rotterdam uh, in Europe. And so, certainly, the intention I think from the beginning has been to connect China with that. Western part of both Asia and then extending all the way through to Europe. Uh, I remember Xi Jinping standing in Xi'an, which is uh, an old capital of China and in in Western China, uh, talking about how he he could see the distant plumes of smoke and he was imagining the camels sort of you know traipsing across the desert. And I've travelled across that desert, and it is quite remarkable. Um, but I think the connection there also. I'd like to just talk about Xi'an because it was the first place I visited. Uh, when I first visited China in 1998 and it was a pretty run-down old uh, town, still large by Australian standards, but I went back there a couple of years ago uh, and was being taken there by uh, some party officials and so they were obviously showing us, you know, they wanted us to see the good stuff and boy did they show it to us. I mean, the city had just been absolutely transformed into this sort of glittering metropolis that quite literally bowled me over. Uh, and I wasn't the only one doing that. And, you know, you could say that I was drinking the Kool-Aid there, but as I stood there reflecting on, in fact, my PhD thesis, which was on Chinese regional development, and I felt really excited about the BRI in a kind of nerdy economist way. But looking at how the Chinese government and, you know, the, the opening up of the market uh, more generally, just the transition process that they've been going through for those 20 years and more, the transformation that they'd achieved had come about partly from the Western development strategy. So the Chinese government's had a long history of regional development strategies, and I wouldn't mind talking more about those, but the latest one before the Belt and Road was this Western development strategy where they very deliberately built up infrastructure uh, and tried to create new markets in the Western parts of the country. And they do that using some pretty specific Chinese tools, a lot of state-directed investment channeled through state-owned banks, a lot of them going out to state-owned enterprises. But the transformation of this city standing there, where it now has, for example, the largest um, high-speed railway network hub in the world, uh, just dwarfing anything that happens and that you can experience anywhere else, obviously in Australia included, uh, that kind of really started to shape my thinking about the economics of the Belt and Road Initiative as well. It sounds like an extraordinary tra transformation in the space of what a couple of, a couple of decades. Uh, let's stick with the economics of the initiative because we know that in response to the global financial crisis, China embarked on a huge program of stimulus spending throughout the country. But as the crisis subsided, China finished with surplus capacity, for example, in its domestic steel industry. How big of a push factor is this for the Chinese government to seek out the international investment opportunities through programs such as BRI? Yeah, so that's, a, I guess, a problem that arises when you do let or allow the state to direct capital in certain ways, then what can happen is, as economists would put it, you know, you lead to an inefficient allocation of resources. And for example, as you've said, you can get a real build-up uh, in certain outputs uh, that you don't need 
to use domestically and that excess steel capacity was a really good example of that. Uh, not just that, but also slowing growth in some parts of the economy, particularly in the coastal provinces where rising costs had started to kick in and lab, you know, labour costs especially were rising. So you're looking for new markets uh, coupled with this all of this steel that you've got to spend, like it really actually starts to make sense and particularly from a Chinese regional development perspective that you'd take, look, look for new markets to invest the capital and also to build up some of that or use some of that steel in uh, as well. Many people when they think of contemporary China imagine a fairly prosperous place. They you know, more more reminiscent perhaps of the Shanghai skyline. But the wealth isn't evenly distributed across the country. In fact, there are significant disparities between the wealthiest parts of China, many of them on the country's eastern seaboard, and the poorer provinces, uh, particularly in the country's interior. What's the significance of that kind of regional inequality for the scheme? Look, the Western development strategy, I think, is an integral part of the broader Belt and Road Initiative. So if you think about, and again, there's a 40-year story behind this or more, but you've got Deng Xiaoping deliberately setting out to allow some regions and people to get rich first, and he deliberately targeted the coastal regions in that, which had traditionally been the most highly developed parts of the country. You then see this shift from the 2000 onwards to a Western development strategy that is, again, quite deliberately trying to encourage a relocation of industry uh, and doing that through infrastructure building more than anything else. And certainly by travelling across the country, as I've done for several decades, to get on high-speed trains now and travel down from Beijing to Kunming in 12 hours when it once upon a time took me 40, uh, or to get on a train and travel from uh, Lanzhou in western China but all the way out to Kashgar, you see what uh, just railway development alone can do to affect that structure, both of industry, but also then translating into uh, an improvement in the sort of distribution of income as well. That said, there's still a long way to go and there are large pockets of China and I always say to people, make sure you get on a train and get out of Shanghai and Beijing because the further west you go, you see just how poor those people are. And that then links into, you know, another non-economic imperative really. If we look at what's happening in Xinjiang at the moment, we don't necessarily have time to get into the specifics of that. But from the Chinese government's perspective, they've long considered that bringing development to the people there and in Tibet will somehow then make them, you know, much more happy sort of compatriots in the system. So I talked in the, in the introduction about this is an ambitious policy which is being driven by President Xi Jinping. But how much of the BRI is really driven by central government? Is it also being led, is it all being led from Beijing or do those provincial and local governments play a role in it as well? Yeah, look, that's a great question. I mean, there's quite a bit of debate over whether this is some sort of top-down grand transnational development strategy that's fully controlled by the by the centre in Beijing and by President Xi himself, or whether this is actually, and I've heard it described as an ad hoc, bottom-up kind of messy conjunction of a whole bunch of different players. And I think the reality is somewhere in between that. What happens often in Chinese policymaking is that there is a big announcement from the top, and then you see the, provi- the province 
provinces rush in and all provincial governments have their own BRI plans. You see state-owned enterprises and private enterprises starting to develop their own BRI plans and you can see those on the websites of major companies, I mean, including Huawei, I'm pretty sure, still does have that. Uh, so not just state-owned companies, but a whole range of Chinese companies coming in and kind of filling it in from the bottom up, but also signalling to the Beijing government that they're willing and ready, you know, to accept the funds that might get directed their way. Uh, and so the process kind of unfolds in that top-down, bottom-up way. Uh, and the debate still continues as to, as, as to who is really dominating that picture. All right. So moving on from talking about the economics of the BRI, how much of this initiative is also about foreign policy? So coming in as an economist from the beginning, uh, you know, I couldn't help but focus on the economic sort of parts of the Belt and Road Initiative. But I guess in the time that's passed since then, you know, I also try to look at and think carefully about what the geopolitical um, motivations might also have been for Beijing. I mean, when I first wrote about this just a couple of years ago in the China Story Yearbook, I called the chapter The Belt and Road Initiative, How to Win Friends and Influence People. And I set it against um, Donald Trump's trade war at the time and, you know, and basically did suggest, uh, and people can disagree with me about this, but that you know, if you're going to set out on a on a some kind of grand strategy to shape relation, your relations with the rest of the world, that the Belt and Road Initiative kind of looked like a better approach to doing that than a let's make America great again, America first kind of protectionist stance that we know Donald Trump has taken. Uh, I guess it still remains a really big question, you know, how do you win friends and influence people and is the Belt and Road Initiative the way to do it? And when we've seen it in the Pacific, for example, and just last year it was Kiribati and Sol the Solomon Islands who switched allegiance away from Taiwan and towards Beijing uh, – and that seems like a motivation that was, you know, worth pursuing from Beijing's perspective. Uh, it obviously provides an example of a grander strategic objective beyond, you know, just being nice to the Solomon Islands and helping them with their roads and infrastructure. Uh, but I would make the point that, you know, isn't that a sensible thing for a rising power to do. You know, China's wealth has accumulated dramatically and with rising wealth comes power. Power is synonymous with influence. And what we really want to explore is whether and how that influence is used in ways that are reasonable or whether they're unacceptable. Also noting that what seems reasonable from Beijing's perspective might still then have implications for Australia's national interests, for example, that are problematic. Uh, and so we start needing to think not just about the economics, but about what I'd call the geoeconomics of the Belt and Road, all of those aspects where the economic tools that are being used and investment in infrastructure, for example, and the Belt, Belt and Road's much bigger than just infrastructure, but whether that's being used to simply achieve an economic outcome, expanded trade um, opportunities, or whether it's trying to achieve something else, what that is, and whether and how that might be problematic for others. That's what geoeconomics is all about. I mean, you talked about, you know, the sort of investment in infrastructure, you know, the kind of roads and, and what have you, but can roads and infrastructure more broadly be, be used in a kind of malign way for geopolitical purposes? Yeah, they certainly could be. Well, not roads themselves, but of course, infrastructure includes a whole bunch of things, and there's a digital belt and road 
part of the plan, right? And so if you're building up 5G networks across the globe uh, and you're doing it in countries where there might be political conflict or where there might be some sort of grander, you know, rivalry playing out between the United States and China, for example, uh, as that relationship continues to deteriorate, as it will, uh, the possibility that China and the Chinese government would somehow access those networks and use them and collect intelligence or use them in, in, in malign ways is, is certainly a possibility. I mean, I struggle more with the roads and the bridges, and I've heard people say, you know, you don't want them building roads. This is going to be a security threat. It's like, how does building a road by anyone, you know, that's a capital injection going in. The road is built possibly by a state-owned Chinese company, possibly not. Um, but the idea that that road could then somehow be taken away from you or made problematic, you know, I struggle with that. But certainly there are possibilities uh, in some parts of infrastructure development and that sort of high-tech um, 5G networks, you know, becomes a pretty prominent example there. All right. Well, I want to dig a little more into some of the sort of foreign policy drivers around this. But for now, let's just take a quick break and we'll be back in a moment. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If Only in Theatres, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Welcome back to Democracy Sausage Extra, and we're talking with Professor Jane Golley. Jane, just before the break, we were talking about the possible foreign policy drivers for China's Belt and Road Initiative. And one term that we hear coming up in a lot in relation to the BRI is this term, debt trap diplomacy. Can you tell us what that means and whether you think concerns about it are valid? The number of times I've heard the Belt and Road being accused of this cunning plan for debt trap diplomacy. Honestly, I would be wealthy if I'd collected a dollar each time. And I do have strong views about it that are based on what I've read uh, widely about, including from work done here at the Crawford School. Um, I mean, basically, the idea of debt trap diplomacy suggests that Beijing or any other government might deliberately go in and loan lots of money uh, to another country watch that country fall into the or find themselves unable to repay those loans and then use that as leverage against them to make them comply with their foreign policy wishes. Now, that is possible in theory, but I just can't see it making sense in practice. I mean, the idea that you'd sink lots of money in and just watch it go down the drain, that's your money going to waste there, particularly at this point in time, you know, in post-COVID, the world economy is crumbling, China's own foreign reserves are falling rapidly, like it's really important for them to make investments that are actually going to benefit 
their own investors, um, but also the the motivation for, the, you know, it's such an indirect route, I think, for them to gain power that it doesn't matter. But the reason I think that most strongly is that the evidence that I've read and I've read about it in the African context, in Latin America and in the Pacific, um, very often we hear reference to the Hamban Toda port. Isn't this a classic example? Well, actually, if you look at the, the facts closely there, and we've got, again, colleagues here at the ANU who have done that, there really isn't that much evidence, or in, I'd go as far as saying any evidence that Beijing has deliberately done that. You know, maybe one or two tiny examples where it might play out a little bit. But but overall, there isn't the evidence to suggest that Beijing has engaged in debt trap diplomacy. And yet now it's used as kind of common knowledge and common parlance in describing the Belt and Road. You mentioned the port there. This is the one in Sri Lanka. Can you explain to us a little what happened with that? So I think if you look into the details of the Hamban Toda port case, and look, it's not my area of expertise, so I'm not claiming full knowledge here, but what I have learned from others who know far more about it than I do is that the problems that happened with that, with that investment had a lot to do with trouble on the, on the Sri Lankan side of things, that there was, you know, there was a lot of political unrest, there was a, there was corruption in the government, that they didn't use the funds well, and that they basically in the end had to go back to Beijing for help. I mean, I've seen that play out in the um, in a Papua New Guinean story as well, where I remember the headline in the Australian that said Beijing circling PNG, and then when you read to the first line of that, it said Papua New Guinea has gone to Beijing asking for debt relief because they're not being able to finance the debt well enough, you know. And so the the difference between that headline and the actual facts of the story really matter here. Uh, and if you get deep into the facts, you know, we need to understand how Sri Lanka's political system works and the whole bunch of things that would affect Chinese or any other foreign capital cap, capital from being used effectively in that country. I mean, I've got one more example of that where I remember, you know, I remember someone um, asking me what should China do to make sure that the investments in Pakistan go well? And my response to that was, well, what should Pakistan do to ensure that Chinese capital or, again, any other foreign capital is is well utilised in the country? I mean, that follows in nicely to questions about the Australian context where, you know, if you look at Chinese investments and we've had a hell of a lot of them in the last two decades – because we've got the appropriate rules and regulations in place, because we have the Foreign Investment Review Board to ensure that uh, all investments are consistent with the national interest and, and so on, that they don't have security concerns, that they are obliged to um, uphold our rules and regulations when they come into the country. It's a lot more, I think, sort of the responsibility of and the capability of the of the recipient government than it is of the investor to make sure those investments deliver what they're meant to jobs and growth i i do i do want to talk about the australian element to this story but before we get to that i mean i said at the beginning that the bri involves 60 different countries and when there's a huge outflowing of capital to these 60 different countries all with different political systems uh, different democratic institutions there must have been quite a intense learning process for china in terms of navigating those and probably some uh, some errors along the way Look, there have definitely been errors along the way. Uh, Chinese companies have been going out, which was the term that uh, President Hu Jintao called on them to do from the early 2000s, uh, and investing 
across the globe, you know, so now for a couple of decades. Uh, and there are certainly more than one story uh, of problems, for example, with them failing to comply with environmental regulations in particular countries. I can think of Ghana or a whole a whole bunch of countries, you, you, you name it. Uh, there has certainly been stories about them failing to comply with labour regulations as well and with, you know, displacing people and not treating them uh, as well as they should be. So that's created civil unrest in some countries. Uh, but I do think you know, like all other investors, the Chinese investors have been on steep learning curves. They've responded uh, to that. And for example, a lot of them now have corporate social responsibility plans uh, and have tried, I think, over time to do better. But that's not to say that they're all perfect. And that again links back to our earlier point about even if Beijing comes out and they have and said, you know, you must have these, you, you need to comply with local rules and regulations, you're still going to have individual state-owned companies out in Papua New Guinea or over in Ghana who ignore Beijing and do what they want. And sometimes some of them behave badly. So if debt track diplomacy probably isn't a thing and probably isn't an element of this, are there other strategic ambitions behind this, those that aren't all about economic development? I definitely can't argue that this is a clear motivation of Beijing's, but if you look at how things are unfolding in Australia at the moment, and it's pretty serious, we've seen a lot of, uh, different areas in which Beijing, you know, we're using the word economic coercion quite frequently, um, looks to be punishing, whether it's the barley sector yesterday and in the last few months, the wine industry, the beef industry. We know that because of China's growing wealth translated into power, that they've now got the capacity to deliver quite serious blows to individual sectors in the economy. Now, I don't know that that's their intent with the BRI from the beginning, but it does follow as a consequence that if you build up infrastructure that links your markets back into Beijing and that you then build up your dependency on them, uh, they're also possibly depending on you for things like iron ore and a bunch of other things that might give individual countries some leverage back in return. But essentially, I can certainly envisage, you know, a geoeconomic story that is a little, that is quite a bit more malign than the economic kind of glowing story that I've painted so far, in which down the track, those that rising connectivity then buys Beijing power um, to use its influence not in a friendly way, but in something, you know, that, that will be most unwelcome wherever it's applied. How different is that, though, from what Western countries have done for decades in terms of building alliances and relationships through infrastructure spending? But surely, surely power and influence comes along with those as well. Well, that's right. I mean, this is the, the, the great question that I think the international relations scholars are, are, are certainly deeply debating, you know, as you have a rising power, uh, challenging the status quo power. Uh, there's lots of different ways of looking at that. You can be looking at all about how the rising power is getting things wrong and challenging challenging the status quo, uh, or you can be more accommodating of that. I mean, it is difficult to accommodate or to make a case for accommodating the China that we're witnessing today because of how it's changed uh, under Xi Jinping. But if you look at the long game, absolutely, with wealth comes power and power can be used both positively and negatively. And I think we've all witnessed that of the United States uh, and anyone who denies that, I think, is closing their eyes to the, you know, a far more complex reality about what great powers do and how they behave in the world. 
So moving to Australia now, I talked in the introduction about the federal government's foreign relations bill and Victoria's agreement with China on the BRI. Can you tell us a little about what's in the Victorian agreement and what it means? Well, you mentioned at the beginning that, you know, it's about attracting capital for infrastructure projects, but I think it does go beyond that if you look at the statement. Uh, uh, it's it's not just about infrastructure, but also about expanding trade opportunities in a whole range of sectors. I, I recall hearing the aged care sector uh, and health more broadly being included in that, you know, at a time right now when that's going to be needed. That's one area ever. that could certainly do with some investment. Yeah, well, that's right. Um, but so, you know, it is, it was a broad, a fairly broad deal about expanding investment and trade opportunities. Do you think that the legislation that's being put through Parliament will necessarily lead to a shutting down of Victoria's MOU with China and should it? So they're two different questions, obviously. Um, will it and should it? Look, I'll be very inter- interested to see how it plays out. Uh, you mentioned at the beginning Scott Morrison's suggestion that we need one voice, one plan. It does sound quite a little bit like one belt, one road, I have to say. Um, but it, that makes perfect sense, you know, from the federal government's perspective to have a state government that is not aligning with it uh, on any particular project is certainly something that will need to come under close scrutiny. Um, but what I hope is that when the federal government goes in to assess the Belt and Road Initiative and and the agreement that the Victorians have on it, that they do that on a case-by-case basis. So, for example, sure, if the BRI deal was going to lead to Victoria developing, you know, using Huawei to develop a 5G network, I mean, that just one, it's never going to get past the FERB, uh, and two, that would w- clearly run counter to the federal government's uh, security concerns about that particular project, and so it would make sense to say no to it. But more broadly, you know, if you go in and analyse what the deal's about, and if, for example, there are clear examples of investment and trading opportunities going into the aged care sector, I think it's going to be difficult for the federal government to construct an argument that that is somehow counter to our national interests or having any particular security threats in particular. What do you think the way the discussion has unfolded says about the state of the China debate in Australia? The debate's become obviously very heated and there seems to be this rather significant divide between the economists and the security analysts and and I think that's a real shame. I mean, I, as an economist, have really opened my eyes to considering all of the, the other possibilities and I hope you've heard that in the way I've discussed this today, not just thinking about the economics of any particular deal or the benefits of foreign capital coming into the country and what that means for jobs and growth, but also learning to reflect on the security risks that might come with that and to being really clear-eyed about the trade-offs that might need to be taken, whether by Australian companies um, or by Australian analysts, by policymakers, by all of us who are trying to understand this very complex world that we now live in. And I describe that as a geoeconomic world. There's no point talking up the need for perfectly open markets and free flows of capital in a world that has just changed from the neoliberal one that I grew up in, uh, it's not going to be the world of the future. And so I think the state of the debate, you know, what I hope to see is that we have these more open conversations where I can sit down with a security expert, and I do, uh, and hear them out, um, adjust my views, you know, as I learn from them, uh, and likewise, them from me, you know, and I'll 
make the example of debt trap diplomacy again, the number of times I've talked about the academic evidence that's accumulated and I read widely to try and understand that stuff and come out and say I can't find evidence of that. Um, if anyone can adjust their position on that and let it go, you know, that would be a sign of progress towards formulating a strategy uh, for what is going to be a pretty fraught future relationship with China, but one that is still fundamentally important for our prosperity and prosperity in turn matters for our national interest. Just turning back to the economics of it for a second, I mean, one possible elephant in the room that we haven't touched on is the coronavirus crisis and the effect that that's going to have on the global economy. How is how is COVID-19 likely to impact on the BRI? That's a great um, final question because with all the concern that we've got about the Belt and Road Initiative, it is likely to shrink, I think, quite dramatically uh, because of COVID-19. I mean, the Chinese economy has taken a pretty bad hit, although not as bad as the rest of the world. You know, they're already on the road to the re- recovery with, I think, GDP growth of about 2.3 or so percent expected for this year. Uh but still, their foreign capital stocks have fallen. Uh, they've got much higher needs domestically to combat COVID, both in the health, in terms of health, but also the edu- the economic impacts. And so, you'd expect to see them diverting more of those resources domestically. Um, but also because of the pushback that's happened, because of the way that the United States is now describing the Belt and Road Initiative as, as, as a part of the Chinese Communist Party's more comprehensive sort of plot to overtake the world and steal American freedoms, as he puts it, that pushback will have an impact on, on the Chinese government's decisions. And I think you'll see them um, spending less abroad, both because they don't have it to spend and because it's increasingly not welcomed. You know, what that means, say, for Australia um, and for the rest of the recipient countries as well is less capital. Uh, and I can't help but end on that point as an economist and less capital coming from abroad does mean fewer jobs, uh, lower economic growth and, and less prosperity. I do have one final question for you, Jane. I mean, there's obviously a lot that we do know about the BRI and you've you know, brilliantly talked us through it today. But what don't we know? We're in Australia's premier research university right now. What parts of BRI need further research and attention? The Belt and Road Initiative is now written into China's constitution. It's a three-decade long plan that has Xi Jinping's stamp on it. So for as long as he's around and presumably beyond, it will be a part of China's global engagement strategy, um, but it'll also change over time. Uh, and I think we've seen that change in the last seven years that it's now been in place. We, it was originally, in fact, announced some people came up with numbers as high as $8 trillion that would ultimately be invested. Uh, we don't know how much they'll have in the future to invest. We don't know how the the interplay between the China and the United States will affect the dynamics of the Belt and Road. Uh, I don't know how China's rising power will play out on the global stage and, you know, how that will interact with its wealth uh, and how other countries will respond to that. So I guess I'd still close by saying what this is is a complex geoeconomic question and it's a geoeconomic strategy uh, where we need to be very clear about what the economic tools 
are, how they're being used, what they're trying to achieve, what objectives they have, doing that on a case-by-case basis, you know, in individual countries, uh, thinking carefully about different sectors, about infrastructure versus trade, uh, weighing up the economic benefits and costs with the security risks. Uh, That all takes deep thinking along interdisciplinary lines. Uh, We've got the perfect... um, place to do it here at the ANU and that work is underway. Lots of really interesting questions to address there but let me thank you Jane for coming in and talking to us about the uh, Belt and Road Initiative today. I I found it hugely illuminating and I'm sure our listeners will too. Thank you Jane. You're welcome. Listeners, thanks so much for tuning in to today's Democracy Sausage Extra. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's episode, so do reach out to us. You can find us on Twitter, where we're Apps Policy Forum, that's APPS Policy Forum, or better yet, join the Pod Squad on Facebook, where Policy Forum Pod on there. We look forward to you joining the conversation. We'll be back with you on Monday with another episode of Democracy Sausage, but until then, cheerio for now. 